So it's a great time of year. Kids are gearing up to go back to school, and um, the weather's great for riding motorcycles. It's just a fantastic season. <clears throat> but uh, above and beyond all that stuff, it's, it's a great time to be alive in God. This is an hour like never before, and I am so confirmed by the Lord and just encouraged by the Lord uh, in what he's doing right now in people, right now, you, me, and many other people throughout the world. And so if you've been around here, you know we've been in a series of messages about pressing toward the mark for the prize. Paul, the apostle, was very focused and determined. He was leaving everything that the world could offer him behind because he saw something, and more specifically, he saw someone the person of Jesus, and he identified the prize in Philippians 3. He said that I might win Christ. And so Paul was counting every other thing but dung, worthless, in exchange for the person of Christ. And we've been talking about going after the prize like Paul did, and the prize being the person of Jesus Christ. We've said a lot of things thus far, but today I want to pick up on a verse we've been looking at. Uh, in relationship to this idea of pressing toward the mark for the prize. And it's found in Psalms 105, verse 41. Sorry, we don't have a bunch of scriptures to put up on the screen today. That means you'll have to open your Bible. Hallelujah. <laughs> Imagine that. Open your Bible. Psalms 105, verse 41. It's the historical of Israel um, coming you know, out of bondage and into their promised land. And in the wilderness wanderings here, the psalmist records something very important that happened along the way. Psalms 105:41. He, God, opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. Now we've said this, and I just got to get these pieces on the table, so hang with me. Okay, here God making testimony of, of what happened to his people coming out of bondage, Egypt, on their way to the promised land. You know, like Paul, he said, I've not arrived yet, but this one thing I'm doing, I'm pressing. I'm in, I'm in route to something here, somewhere. And that's the same thing that was happening in the Old Testament. They were coming out of bondage, sin, Egypt, and they were on their way to the promised land, right? And while they were in route in the wilderness... God opened to them a rock, and water came gushing out for them. Now, Paul, in the New Testament, tells us that rock was not just a rock. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Paul says, And they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from that rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Right? So we have this picture. They didn't even realize what was going on. They're in the wilderness wandering through, complaining about not having any water. And the rock is opened. But Paul says, the rock is Christ opened. And so we've had this prayer recently around here. We've been saying, God, would you open the rock to us in our generation? Would you open the person of Christ to us? in our generation. I don't want to just know about the surface of Christ. I want the rock opened to me. I want to see him. I want to know his heart. And that's been our cry, and I'm asking you to continue 
with that focus because Paul had it that I might win Christ. We're supposed to have it in this generation. This generation has to be more focused on Christ than any generation ever has before. This is the hour of his unveiling. It's the hour of his coming. And we're pressing to know him in this way. So we're saying, God, would you open the rock to us that waters might gush out. Gush out, not trickle out. You know, I know this is redundant for some of you, but hang with me. Revival is when waters gush out of the person of Christ. That's revival. Not trickle, not spritz, gush. Out of control. You can't put a limit on it. It's gushing because it's coming from him and it's of him. And we're saying, God, would you open Christ, open the rock to us in our generation in such a way that the waters of heaven would begin gushing out and refreshing and reviving a people. We're believing God for revival that's going to get everybody wet. Amen. Amen. Nobody left out. You might have come in thinking you had your rain jacket on and you weren't going to get touched by the Holy Ghost, but I'm here to tell you God's going to get on you anyway because this water is going to be over your head. I tell you, a lot of protected Christians, they come in, they want to go to church, but they don't want to get too wet, and God's going to mess you all up, huh? All that dignified stuff, you're going to be rolling on the floor before it's over with. Who knows? I don't know. But I'm here to tell you, God is getting ready to move again in the earth. So here's our prayer. God, open to us the rock, the person of Christ. So waters will gush out in our generation and at this time in history. Paul, who said that in 1 Corinthians 10, that the rock is Christ, if you read on there, he says, all of these things were written for our example, upon whom the end of the age has come. So if that's true, those written, they're written for our learning and for our instruction so that we can know how to navigate the end of the age. I want to just go back today, and I want to actually look at the historical account in the book of Exodus of when God opened the rock. Let's just go back and look at it for a second, because there's some tremendous important truths here that we need to see and glean from. Exodus chapter 17 and verse 1. I hope you're staying with me. If you're, if you're here for the first time today, I know it's a lot of information, but I trust the Holy Ghost will help you keep, keep bringing you along with us, okay? We've been studying here for a while together. Exodus 17 and verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Now, i got to say this to you. This people right now in what we're reading about was in the will of God. They had come out of Egypt. They were en route. They were actually moving toward the promised land. And right there in the middle of the will of God, they had a problem. Can you imagine that? In the middle of the will of God, all of a sudden, there was no water. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't seem like a godly thing for God to do. But if God's agenda is different than your agenda, then it's absolutely a good thing to do. You know, we want a drink of water. God wants to reveal Christ to us. See, we're down here thinking, you know, God, just carry me through by meeting my natural and temporal needs in this life. They're out here on their way to the so-called promised land, not realizing that the promised land is a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And so 
They would have been satisfied with just a drink of water, but God said, no, 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 no. I got to get your eyes off of temporal things. You know, God will let temporal things fail if it moves us toward eternal things. And often that's what happens. Natural things let us down all the time. I'm convinced most of the time it is by divine design. God is wanting us to get our eyes on a person, not on this or, you know, we're happy if I got the car, we're happy if our bills are paid, we're happy, thank God for all that stuff. But here in the will of God, there was no water. Oh, yeah, there was. There was water. They just didn't know where it was. It was in a rock that was following them. Did you know that your water could be in a very hard place? The very thing you're needing could be in a very hard place, and we don't even see it because we don't like hard places. So there was no water for the people to drink. Verse 2, therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us? and our children, and our livestock with thirst. Isn't it interesting how, how we blame other people when God the whole time is setting the stage to reveal himself? You see, we think people are our answer. Too many times we've got our hopes set on other people, and the whole time God has set the stage that will get our eyes off of people and get our eyes onto him and to the purpose that he has for our lives. Thank you for that. Amen. You brought us out here to kill us, Moses. What are you doing? Moses says, why did, you know, Moses cries to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. And water shall come out of it, and the people shall drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, to me, you know, we're talking about God opened the rock. Who's the rock? Come on. The rock is Christ. We're saying God opened the rock to us. And when we go back and look at the historical account, how did God open the rock? He opened the rock by smiting it. That's how the rock initially opened to them in the wilderness. Now, what does that mean to us? Let me tell you what it means to us. That if we want to know Jesus and we want to have his spirit gush out in our generation. It's going to come by first returning to the cross. Come on. The rock was smitten. Christ, the rock, had to be crucified. He had to be smitten by God in order for these waters to come out. And if you and I bypass this essential truth, the cross, there, it, it won't be revival. It'll be some other spirit, some other thing we've worked up. But when you look at the, the essence of the cross, this is where God reveals his heart to us, his very heart in the person of Christ. You know, the people, 
we're rebellious, murmuring, and complaining. And yet, the waters gushed out. I was encouraged by this. I thought, you know, revival doesn't come to people who have it all together. Isn't that good news? Come on. You know, we, we, think, we, we think if we can ever just get everybody walking right, then revival will come. I'm encouraged because God says here, you know what? I'm going to give myself because I love people. And my cross, while we were yet sinners, come on, Christ died for us. Amen. That's the spirit of revival. It's not a bunch of holy people who have it all together that invoke the presence of God and bring revival, although God loves us walking hard after him and all those things. At the end of the day, our confidence cannot be in our stuff. Come on. Our confidence cannot be in our ability. Our confidence has to, confidence has to be in the rock that was smitten for us all. Our eyes back on the person of Jesus Christ. A rebellious people, yet revival comes to them. I'm encouraged. There's hope for us. There's hope for us. You know, the cross is like the key that unlocks heaven's door. The cross is the key. It's right, the right shape. You use it, turn it, and it opens heaven's door. And yet somehow we've been tempted to leave the cross. Paul understood this. Let me read some scripture here. It's important to hear the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 1. Paul says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, now Paul says, listen, this cross thing is a big deal, you know, and I came determined not to preach any other thing or to know any other thing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, this is to me, this is important stuff, because Paul is saying, when I came among you, I was determined not to do it in the strength of human flesh and human ability, eloquence, you know, great sermon content. I came because I didn't want there to be any confusion about who Christ is. No confusion and about him having the only power to deliver you. He says that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Isn't that kind of contrary to much of what happens in our modern Christianity? When there's so much emphasis on being polished. Come on, talk to me, somebody. So much emphasis on us having every, the sound is right, the air is right, the lights are right, the preacher's spot on. And you know what's happened? We've created confusion because people are putting their confidence somewhere other than Christ. And God's saying, I'm calling a church back to myself. I'm going to open a rock in a wilderness place, and waters are going to gush out. I tell you, we're standing on the edge of revival, and it's going to come when we get our eyes back on a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. 
him and him crucified. What I love about this portion of scripture where Paul says, I didn't come with great speech and enticing words of men's wisdom, it says to me that revival doesn't come because of wonderful preachers either. <laughs> you know, we thought if the preacher could get it together, we could have revival. People are praying, pray for the preacher, pray for the preacher. <laughs> get your eyes off the preacher. Get your eyes on Jesus. If a preacher's worth half his weight in salt, he won't talk about himself anyways. It's got to be about the person of Christ. So this is great news. Revival doesn't come to people who've got it all together. Come on. And revival doesn't come to preachers who've got it all together. I didn't come with great speech. I didn't come with all this eloquent stuff. I came in demonstration of the life of another. John says, I must decrease that he might increase. And yet we've gone just the opposite with much of our modern Christianity. We've increased the image of who we are. And we've minimized the image of who he is. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pay attention and offer what we do well to the Lord and strive for excellence. I'm not saying any of that. But there's a subtle shift that goes on in the spirit of a place. And if we don't discern that shift, we're going to miss the moving of God. We're going to miss it if we're not careful. So revival doesn't come because of wonderful preachers. That's a great load off of me, man. (laughs) Glory to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Bible says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Let me read it to you. 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. For what we proclaim, I love this, Paul says, what we proclaim is not ourselves. See law. Stop. Check it out. You know, totally contrary to a trend today where everybody is proclaiming themselves. Here, Paul says, what we proclaim is not ourselves. We're not trying to make a name for ourselves. We're not trying to promote our brand or our style of ministry. Come on, church. We've got to get back to promoting the person of Christ. I'm going to get excited before it's over with. We've got to get back to him. He says we we don't proclaim ourselves, but here's what we proclaim. Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now, Paul does something really beautiful here. He says, you know what? Because people's tendency is to look at the leader or leaders and get confused about, you know, where their help comes from. And Paul says, listen, we didn't come here to talk about ourselves and promote ourselves. We came here to promote Jesus as Lord. And here's who we are. We're simply your servants for Jesus' sake, not for our own sake. Not trying to build my 401k. Don't even have one. (laughs) Your servant for Jesus' sake. When ministry becomes a way of making a bunch of money and its motive, we've missed the heart of God. And we've postured ourselves for corruption like Balaam who prophesied for deceitful wages. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then here it is. 
But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see, God in his infinite wisdom decided to put his greatness in something not so great. Right? And yet we're over here trying to make ourselves look so great. You see, what's happened is we're in competition with Jesus. You know, as the story goes, the, the, the jeweler finds a pearl that's without price. It's beautiful. It's flawless. It's huge. It's a beautiful pearl without price. And he decides that the way he's going to show this pearl off is by getting this little velvet black box worth a buck. And he's going to take this amazing priceless pearl and he's going to stick it in a little box worth a dollar. It's clothed in velvet, you know. And the reason he does it is because of contrast. Contrast. We have this treasure in jars of clay that all the attention might be on him and not on us. You see, every time we make it about us and we try to make ourselves look more expensive than we are, we're actually in competition with bringing glory to God. We're in competition. John the Baptist said, I'm a friend of the bridegroom. And you want to know how I'm a friend? Because it ain't about me. I'm on my way out, and he's on his way in. And it's proportionate, by the way. As I decrease, he is increasing. There's a choice. You know, I know you've heard the story before, but here it is anyways. It's like the guy who has a friend, and he's going to introduce her to this gal. The guy's single, and he wants to introduce his friend to this gal who's single. And so he says, hey, let me introduce you to somebody. So he introduces him to this gal. And they actually start to kind of like each other. They start making eyes at each other and talking a little bit. And they're friends and everything. And so the guy that introduced his friend to this gal, he's kind of happy, you know, they're there. And then <clears throat> all of a sudden he realizes that they don't want him there, the initial guy who introduced them anymore. You see, there, there comes a time where you introduce somebody, but then there's a time when you've got to get out of the way. And the problem oftentimes is that we're willing to introduce somebody to Christ, but we're not willing to get out of the way and let Christ and them fall in love with each other, and we want them to be in love with us, and we're kind of a third wheel. I'm talking about what happens to preachers, what happens to congregations, where it's about us, and somehow we've missed the point. No, no, no. It's about him, and it's about introducing people to him and then knowing when to get out of the way and stop promoting ourselves. We're just a conduit to help join people to him. The friend of the bridegroom. The friend. God, help us to be your friend. Treasures in jars of clay that the surpassing power belongs to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. I'm going to read it again. Christ sent me not to baptize, Paul said, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words. I'm not trying to, to flatter everybody and make everybody impressed with my eloquent speech. 
He says, and here's the reason I'm not doing it that way. Because if I did it that way, the cross of Christ would be made of no effect. It's like people, again, like the verse we read before, would start putting their confidence in the preacher and not in the person of Christ. So Paul was clearly careful with with the way he ministered and and what he did, it didn't mean he intentionally tried to flounder around. It just meant that he didn't come leaning on his own stuff. I'm just here leaning on Jesus. Don't know how it's going to go. But if I keep Jesus at the center, it's going to be good in the end. When we replace the cross with human wisdom and human goodness, we end up in the flesh and we end up the enemy of God. The cross the cross. Remember, the rock was smitten. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is not a new problem. It's been around for a while, but it's evident in our generation for anybody who's willing to look and and call it what it is. Galatians chapter 3, Paul was dealing with a group of people called the Judaizers. That's how they were classified. And Judaizers were people that were trying to take new Christian converts and then to somehow put them back under the obligation of keeping the law, the Mosaic law, for righteousness sake. To become righteous, you had to be circumcised and believe in Jesus. It was Jesus and. It was kind of a Jesus and movement, right? You, you, you have Jesus, you have the cross, and by the way, you got to be circumcised, and by the way, you got to keep certain dietary things, and by the way, you know, and so they had all their little addendums and attachments. And so Paul, he's very grieved by this. And in Galatians 3 and 1, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you. You see, the first church, when they came preaching the gospel, they came preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. They came bringing a message that said, all of your own works will never fix you. So God came and did for you what you can't do for yourself. That's the gospel. You can't fix you. You know, it's like the person who's drowning in the ocean and uh, going down for their last time. Glug, 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 glug. They're just about done. They've been struggling, struggling, struggling. They're just about to go under, and a boat pulls up beside them. Wouldn't it be silly if the person in the boat said, excuse me, have you tried cupping your hands? Just cup your hands and... And, you know, if you relax a little bit, you'd get a little bit better buoyancy, you know. Come on. If a person is drowning, they don't need swimming instructions. They need saving. Right? You see, when God came to us, he didn't come to give us instructions on how to fix ourselves. Come on. Step one, you and I need saving. Not instructions. Don't do more. Doing isn't going to fix you. You see, that's the cross. The cross brings a death to all of your efforts. The cross brings a death. It's an identification where we say, you know what? No matter how hard I try, it's never enough. You're going to have to do it for me. And Jesus says, I know. And here's how I'm going to do it for you. A life for a life. 
That's why that whole Old Testament thing, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. There's no other remedy other than I'm going to take your place. You should be on the cross because you're the guilty one. You're the one who's violated the righteousness of God. But here's the deal. Your blood won't ever be enough to pay for it. So I, who have no sin, am going to come and do it for you. I'm going to give my life in your place. And that's the preaching of the cross. And it's the remedy for all of our ailments. It starts there. It's where waters gush out of the rock, the cross. So he says, who's bewitched you, Galatians? Who's confused you about this message? Jesus Christ was evidently set forth in front of you, crucified among you, he says. We've been down this path already. How did you get off? He says this in verse 2, this only would I learn of you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Meaning, are you somehow going to be able to fix yourself? Oh, thanks, thanks for rescuing me. Now I don't need your help anymore, God. It's that kind of mentality. Paul says, you've been deceived. Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. You know, we used to sing this little song years ago. It's kind of a corny little song, but it's got a good words to it. Lift Jesus higher, lift Jesus higher, lift him up for the world to see. He said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Bum, bum, bum. Got to throw the bump, bump, bump in or it doesn't have the anointing on it. You know, lift Jesus higher. We think, you know, just lift him higher. But you know what it's a reference to? He said, if I be lifted up from the earth, this signified by what manner of death he would die. Lifting Jesus up is lifting the cross. You know, where, where the Son of God was suspended between heaven and earth making a bridge between heaven and earth. To lift Jesus higher is to preach the cross. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I didn't come with my own strength, lest you be confused that somehow human strength can fix this thing. I didn't come with eloquent speech. I didn't come promoting this, you know, with my ministry vehicle, with my name on the side of it. I didn't come and God bless anybody that's got that. I might have one myself one day. Amen. I don't think so. But, you know, I'm not trying to judge anybody. I'm just trying to point out a subtle thing here where our eyes have gotten off the person and the cross. And we're impressed. We're impressed with things that have distracted us. They've distracted us from the beauty of the Lord. And we need to get back to him. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. You know, there's such a movement today to try to draw men to church. Come on, draw people. You know, well, if we do this and we do this, and trust me, I've been in this. I, I know I'm thinking, you know, how can I have, you know, I want to touch more people and I'm not, you know, throwing stones. I'm just talking here. If we do this and we do that and we do this and we do, draw all men, going to draw all men. But here's the remedy Jesus said. He said, if I be lifted up, 
the cross. It's in the lifting up of the person and of the work of Christ that men's hearts will be drawn the way God wants them drawn. It's not just about adding numbers. It's about adding numbers that have a genuine experience with Christ. So you can build largeness and not have God in it at all. And that doesn't mean big is bad at all. It just means what's, what is it? What's the quality of it? That's the real question I think that's going to matter at the end of the day. The real question. Lifting him up. All right, I'm going to shoot scriptures at you, so get ready. Here they come. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. The preaching of the cross. Galatians 5 and 11. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. You know, the cross offends people's pride. The cross offends people's pride. Because what the cross says is that you can't fix you. And the cross is your only hope. No, no other hope. It's not, it's not a bunch of counseling. It's, it's not a bunch of, you know, do's and don'ts that are going to make you righteous and whole. It's only the cross. That's it. I'm sorry that it's such a narrow way, but it's the way it is. It's just the cross. Bottom line. And it offends. Paul was persecuted for having such a narrow message. Particularly among the religious folks of his day. Because he says here, I, brethren, if I preached circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? You see, there was a, this whole Judaizer movement. You had to be circumcised. And Paul says, no, because then you're taking the attention on putting it on men and not on God. It offends our pride. You know, the common saying is this. In Adam and Eve in the garden was what we call the fall of man. Right? They ate from the tree and they fell but I don't like to use the term fall because I think it was actually the rise of man. Not the fall of man, but the rise of man. It was man rising up in pride. You see, he, God gave him a choice. And God said, all these trees you can freely eat, but of this one tree, don't eat. And in essence, what man said is, I think I know more than you. Granted, he was seduced by the devil, who is the king of pride, right? Trying to advance his kingdom, his pride kingdom. But mankind bought into the lie, and instead of it being the fall of man, it was the rise of man. Ah, I will be my own God. And God said, you think so? Go, All right. Well, how about going out and living in a world? I'm going to let you have, have a taste at that. By the way, it's not going to be all fun, and I'm going to let you taste a little bit of the consequence of you being in charge and being your own God. Pain war, all the junk that's going on in the world. People say to me, you know, if God is so good, why are kids dying of AIDS in Africa? You know, kids dying of AIDS in Africa has nothing to do with God's goodness or lack thereof. It has to do with God honoring man's free will. God honoring man's free will. You want to go be your own God and do it on your own? You think you can do that? Go ahead, have at it. And every problem you see in the world today is God honoring man's free will. Till we finally get to the place, come on, where we get so broken and so desperate that when, like Jesus shows up, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, 
It's as if he's saying, are you tired of being God? You tired of trying to do it on your own? If you are, come unto my church. No, no. Come unto me. Come unto a person, to a relationship with a person. And I, Jesus says, will give you rest. I will give you rest. Pride, it offends. The cross offends our pride. It says you can't do it on your own. You need a savior. I just have a couple more verses, so hang with me. Galatians 6.12, as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. There it is again, this contrast between good works and trying to be good in our own strength and acknowledging our need for the cross of Christ. So we're going to have communion this morning, and I just want to give a quick recap <laughs> on where we are, okay? We're saying, God, we want to be a people that haven't just settled into status quo Christianity. We want to press toward the mark for the prize like Paul did. And we've identified the prize. The prize is a person. The person is Christ, that I might win Christ. And then we've looked at this beautiful passage in Psalms 105, that as they were coming through their wilderness season, come on, not yet in the promised land, not yet in sin. Come on, this is, a, this is a word for believers here. We're coming out and we're moving in. They ran out of water and God opened to them the rock. And when he did, waters gushed out. And the way he opened the rock was by smiting the rock. And we said that Christ is the rock and he was smitten for us. Do you need a drink today? Do you need a refreshing today? Are you, are you tired of, of laboring under some yoke, whether it's a religious yoke or whether it's just this feeling of like you, you don't measure up enough, like, like you got, you know, are, are you under the condemnation of your own failures? Where are you today? I'm here to say to you there's a powerful, beautiful provision in the cross of Christ, this table restores us it reminds us god knew we needed this he said do it often you know because you're, you're going to be so tempted to get off the path and forget what it's all about but here it is the body and the blood of jesus i believe today for some here i know it's been blessing me and speaking to me god wants to untangle you from some stuff human goodness, human wisdom, human effort, human, all of our stuff in our attempts that leaves us so dry. God says, come back to me. So as we get ready to come forward and partake of these precious elements, I'm just going to read Isaiah 53 to you. We're going to pray. And then I'm just going to simply invite you to come forward in a very personal way. If you have Jesus as your Savior and Lord in your life, this table is for you. If for some reason you're here today and you've never opened your heart to Jesus, and I think I know most of you, but it's possible that I can miss somebody. Um, right now could be your time. Amen. You could simply say, you know, Jesus, I don't want to do this on my own anymore. And right here you can give your heart to the Lord. We're going to read Isaiah 53. It's the suffering servant 
who came. And I'm asking God this morning to let us see into the heart of God in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You are loved so much. You know it. God, how much do you love me? And he stretched out his arms and he said this much. God, help us to see it today. Isaiah 53, 1, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken from the transgression of my people, for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Father, I'm just asking you today, you who stare right into every heart in this place and you know right where we are, I'm asking you today, if in any way, Lord, we've deviated from the path. We've somehow muddied the water and put our eyes on other things and put our confidence in other things. I ask you to forgive us today. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, to recalibrate us and reset us. Bring us back to our first love. And by this do we know love that you laid down your life, Jesus, for us. I want to thank you today for us being 
a people who are okay not having to be the most flashy, got-it-together people because it's not about us. It's about Jesus, and our mission is to simply reveal him, even if it's by contrast that we do it. I thank you, Lord. Our boast is in you today. And I thank you for waters gushing out afresh over us in this place. Lord, for those that are under condemnation and heaviness and guilt, I thank you that these waters wash away all of that stuff. I thank you for those who've just become weary, that you revive us as we put our eyes on this person, this beautiful person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we prepare to take these elements, we do it reverently in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name we pray.